From 11FS, I'm Jason Bates, and this is FinTech Insider News, live from Money 2020 Amsterdam. Today, we bring you the roundup of the biggest announcements and trends from Money 2020, uh, Europe leads the world in sustainable finance, and a school in China has made facial recognition software to scan their students every 30 seconds. All this and more on today's show. So, Welcome to episode 329 of Fintech Insider. We come to you live from the 11FS podcast lounge. It sounds a lot grander than it really is. In Money 2020 Europe in sunny Amsterdam. I'm Jason Bates. I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Lida Glyptis. Or is it Leda Glyptis? Glipkiss. Glipkiss, <laughs> as various people have mispronounced I, I've, I've over the conference. I've had many variations of what is a very short name. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm great. It's been a fantastic two days. It feels like I'm on my usual Money 2020 diet of uh, caffeine, caffeine, and more caffeine. Yeah, I think next year we, we set up a store outside of like a survival rations for Money 2020. Yeah. It's like, you know, little packs that through the day you can get into. I think we can do a good business, I swear. So, as always, we're not alone. We're joined by some awesome guests. We have, making their new show debut, Bart Lurs, uh, Chief Digital Inf- uh, Transformation Officer at Rabobank. Thank Hello. you very much. Hello. Uh, and now I'm going to get, this is going to be essentially my downfall. I've got three names that I'm going to struggle to pronounce all of them with. So, Connie Durstein. Oh, it's very close. Connie Durstein. Thank you, dear. Durstein. It's perfect. It's perfect. Yes. Founding partner at Bankify. Indeed. Hello. Yeah, hello. Uh, next to be uh, truly crucified, uh, Jordan Gulli. It's Julie. Julie. Well, the Italian way. Ah, yes. Jordan Julie, co-founder and head of product at Spendesk. I'm a Spendesk customer, so I just want to say that. Thank you. And Suresh Vagiani. That's pretty good. Boom. Um, yeah. Uh, boom. I think they're all being kind to you, though. <laughs> like, I think we need the show notes in phonetic form <laughs> so I can, uh, I can at least make it through the, the intros. So welcome to the show. Great to have you. Let's get started. So first up. Uh, an article from Finextra, Money 2020 Europe 2019, Stop Innovating, Start Executing. They think that the top three themes of the conference so far are, and what the keynote speakers uh, focused on in day one around innovation, cultural innovation, external innovation, technology innovation. Are we innovated out or like, is this still a thing? I think it is still very much a thing because uh, the talk is all about innovation. Uh, the reality today is very much about optimization. And I think, so we th- I think we have some rethinking to do. Um, and as I said this morning, and I totally also agreed with Leda, not because it's Leda, but because she said something very smart. Um, it, is, it is different. We are crossing the rubric and we're going into the unknown. So if you think you can innovate with KPIs and spreadsheets from the 80s, I would say think again. We are going into the unknown. We have to be prepared for the unknown. And it truly is a very, very different game. I think that uh, what we observed is the, uh, I don't know if you read the book from uh, Clayton Christensen, The Innovator's Dilemma. Yep. And so it's really what's, uh, what's happening here in the sense that innovation does not make sense from an economical standpoint at first. And so you have like large corporations who are uh, you know, kind of uh, driven by uh, ROI innovation and this cannot, cannot happen at the uh, uh, proof of concept phase. Yeah. And that's why you have like, tons of emerging fintechs who do not, do not have any constraints. They just focus on a, on a problem that they want to solve uh, you know, bottom up. Uh, they, they find the solutions and once they have traction, then it's when uh, that you need to have the large corporates to uh, kind of uh, 
uh, you know, either try to do partnerships or be eaten. We've, we've done a few interviews with the VP of Amazon Pay, the CEO of Plaid, you know, a variety of different people. And almost everything they talk about is the find a customer problem and use current technology to yes. solve that. And I think we're, you know, the, the, when we talk to clients about the move from analog to digitized solutions, you know, suddenly you get a statement, you print the statement, and now the statement's on your phone. That's very different from the digital, which is almost with naive eyes looking at those core customer problems. Yeah, and it's saying, redesigning entire how processes. Would we, how yeah. would we start? Is that how you, you view it, uh, Bob? Yeah, when I, when I look at Rabobank, I think we look at this a, a bit in a specific way, because maybe you know we are a cooperative organization, so we are a purpose-driven bank. And in all the innovation we do, we really look at what does the innovation really bring to our clients and does it really help the purpose of the bank in growing a better world together? Sure. So we don't do innovation for innovation's sake, but it should really all fit the purpose of the company. And that means or bringing solutions in, uh, bringing efficiency into the value chain, or it means making lives of customers better, like private individuals or sure. business clients. So it should fit the purpose of the company and not innovation for innovation's sake itself. I agree with everything you guys are saying. I like to bring the tone and, and mood down a little bit. I'm finding that the, the gap between what you're describing and the people who are still saying the same things that we said 10 years ago is growing. And although there is undeniable movement in some big organizations who are maturing in the way they engage with emergent technology, emergent customer behaviors, new types of partnerships and new types of economics. And undeniably you're seeing that maturity. You're also seeing the maturity on the startup and scale-up side where actually meaningful businesses with meaningful traction are here to stay. There is still undeniably a, the sort of Blair Witch of conversations we had 10 years ago. And, and there are some people who are still having them. And I was talking to one of my co-panelists earlier today about it. And the attitude they brought to the table is the, the new generation of bankers has come in and their organizations haven't taught them a thing. They come here to learn. We need to educate them, which is very positive. And I don't like it very much. But I'd love to hear how people feel about the conversations they're encountering. So, like kind of being on the front end where we're seeing a lot of startups and, and the ideas that we see to market, I think there's two things that are happening. There are, uh, there are people that are innovating where they think that they're innovating, but actually they're doing something that's quite niche. Uh, and I think sometimes people can't distinguish with what's niche compared to what's innovating. And also, honestly, if I had like one pound for every time a client came to me and said, I want to do a Revolut, you know, I'd be Oof. a multi, multi-millionaire. Yeah. And, and the truth is that they, they, they seem to want to copy what's already out there with one additional feature, and they think that will make all the difference. And I think that, I think the only time that actually works is if someone takes a product in a market where it works really well mm. and copy it in a territory where it's never existed before. And, and, and I'm aware of this regional variations for whether it'll work or not, but if there is a demand for that service, sometimes... I don't think you should reinvent the wheel, but I do think there's quite a lot of people that are, um, they're actually not innovating. They're creating something that's niche and there's no real value to it. And, and, and creating competition and going into different markets yeah. or doing the same thing with an improvement in your UX or whatever. I'm all for that, but let's call it for what it is. Yeah. It's big banks trying to find the silver bullet or reduce the risk. 
mind. We, we've stepped into the space, looked at the risk and go, oh, no, 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 give me the thing yeah. that feels safer. Well, well in and the I, end... I, yeah, sorry. No, but I, I also think, and you're right, Leda, but I think it is the same with everything. You and I, and we all know, true innovation takes a lot of courage. Uh, and so if you don't have that leadership, you can just forget about it. Um, Chris is writing a new book yesterday. He was talking with us at the Rise Up Challenge, and he said, you know, I found five tier one banks that truly sort of get it. Now, there's a lot of mid-sized banks. Um, but what I see is when I go and talk to them about innovation or even about just our company, they will say, yeah, we really love what you're doing. And the next question is, I hope you have about 16 customers, so it's a proven solution. And it's a bit like saying, I want to innovate, I want to do something totally new with a woman who's 16, but she can cook like a Michelin chef, she's raised five children successfully. You know, those two things don't go together. Sure. And I think that therefore we need a sort of balance, a reality check, with both with the banks and with our suppliers to first up front agree what is innovation. I, I happen to know Rabobank well because I come from this country. And I, get, I do get excited when I hear a presentation, I actually know it's happening, about what Rabobank does in the United States with crop insurance. You know, rather than letting these people wait forever eh, for, uh, you know, when there's, there's a big natural disaster, you know, you send out a drone, you take photographs, you take it back and you do something meaningful with AI, robot technology. So to your point, you use existing technology, you combine it differently, but you wrap it around a real life problem. And I think that is where big institutions can really make a difference. But there's, there's something about that calculation of the risk of doing nothing versus yeah. the risk of doing something. Yeah. And until you kind of feel that there's been a Pearl Harbor moment, yeah. that actually we really need to get into yeah. this war because yeah. there's something, something yeah. happening, yeah. then actually you're, most of the time it's like actually the risk of disrupting my own business model when we're making money and everything's going along. Like, do I really think now's the time? Or can we wait a couple of years oh, and see how this goes? How long have I got? It's a good yeah. one. Zero in the UK. I happen to travel up to the UK. I love the UK. I love the UK. Um, <laughs> we love you too. <laughs> the, uh, For the, the accounting package provider <laughs> is sort of starting to get very smartish and say, you know what, we're going to do making tax digital for you, then you use your bank less. Sure. Uh, so we're, we're nibbling away yeah. at the bank's importance for the business customer. I would say as a bank, turn it bloody hell around. Yeah. And, you know, take the whole accounting service yeah. for small, for gig yeah. sole traders, put it in the bloody bank account, do a request to pay. You have all the data, do your tax digital from the bank account. Now, then... I think you are rethinking your role as a bank. And for me, that is innovation. And the interesting thing about that is that it's 50% is the idea, right? You come up with the idea. And then the other 50% is the realization of how many meetings it will take to even get the approval to do the proof of concept. Don't remind and me. I know. I'm, like, I'm getting palpitations thinking about it myself, and I've been out of there a year. But the reality is that you see people who have lost the will to live a little bit with that process mm -hmm. because even though we've gotten traction on the technology side and on the product side to a certain extent and some of the experience side, the machine that takes the decision to execution for most banks, definitely not all, hasn't changed. Your risk meetings, your legal meetings, your compliance meetings. I once had the same meeting with six different legal teams in one day for something that had already gone live. 
Well, I guess it's to, to Jordan's point that, you know, the innovator's dilemma thing. It's like, why doesn't an organization with all the customers, the brands, the technology, the money, like, uh, what prevents them from really getting into that, that sort of next stage? You know, we talk to, uh, we talk to bank boards and the chair lady, chairwoman, chairperson, uh, really gets it. The the ex the exco get it. The board really get it. And then you talk to the people at the bottom, and they really get it. But there seems to be, if anything, problems in the middle. Did you? Where, where do you find the the blockage at Rabobank? Is that a leading question? Probably. <laughs> no, no, it's not that because actually I just heard about the blocking, and I must say, within Rabobank, I think as we see this less and less, and we do know that indeed you have maybe sometimes you have to go to third, 23 commissions to get approval, but. Those are also things that big corporates like Rabobank also are changing. Yeah. So we're setting up our organization more as an agile organization. I'm not sitting in any steering committee anymore. The squads in our uh, company are doing the work. They can do and deliver what they want, want to deliver to clients. So I, I think what you see is that the big corporates also like Rabobank, we are catching up in speed and the setup of the organization to go fast. And this is mainly helping, I think, the move to real digital. Uh -huh. Not innovation yet, because uh -huh. for me, innovation is something really difficult. Uh -huh. uh, so on the digital side, I think we make fast moves also because we set the organization different. Uh -huh. Real innovation for us would be looking at new businesses or new opportunities that are remotely away from the bank itself. So a very uh, clear example, in India, we have just recently invested in Agrostar, which is a big agricultural platform for farmers in India, with the aim to have 40 million farmers on the platform. So it means we are now owner of a platform of farmers. It doesn't have to do anything with banking. Uh -huh. But potentially on this platform, financial services will be a part because those people also have to do payments, they have to do lending. So those for me are real innovations because they're away from our current core business, which is being digitized, but it creates new opportunities all so, around the world. So Jordan, like, I don't, don't know about your experience, but in my experience in startups, I don't think we ever had a conversation about innovation. Well, for for example, we don't have any meetings uh, at Spendesk. Uh, uh, we make uh, decisions, you know, based on paper. It's completely decentralized, and it's part of the culture. You know, I, I wouldn't say that it's uh, the innovation culture, but it's, it's a culture where you want to kind of uh, promote the, the act of failing. You want to, to promote uh, not the, the, the result, but the process of learning towards, uh, you know, building a, a solution to a, a specific uh, market. And, uh, and uh, if I were to, to uh, kind of comment what you said earlier, uh, Steve Jobs said that if you don't cannibalize yourself, someone else will do it. Sure. Okay? So it's inevitable that if you see that there is an opportunity for cannibaliz cannibalization as a large corporate or, or whatever, you have to take it, otherwise it's going to be too late. And, uh, and maybe again to, to, uh, to, to respond to, to, your, to, your, to your previous uh, comments. So, I think that we, we see, uh, uh, we see with the uh, Money 2020 uh, uh, conference that it's all about, I'm sorry, I'm going to say the, the buzzwords first, it's all about PSD2, it's all about open banking, etc. But it's all about uh, having banks, you know, uh, building the rails and the regulatory constraints where uh, fintechs can basically play. Uh, if, you, if, if we were to take a step back, uh, for example, in the UK, from 1960 to 2010, the number of banks uh, uh, decreased, consolidated from more than 50 to less than 10. And in the last six or seven years, the number of banks, such as uh, Revolut, Starling, uh, uh, Monzo, etc., grew again to more than 20. So they are, because it's more easy, because it's easier today to build new uh, stuff thanks to uh, uh, new regulatory constraints and to better rails, 
you have a lot of uh, uh, solutions that uh, may be considered as niche, uh, but a company like Revolut, there are four, four million uh, uh, users, so it's not, it's, it's, it's not a small niche. And so I think that what we are going to see in the next few years is that you're going to have a lot of fintechs trying to innovate, trying to find niche markets and then find traction on it, and then have a consolidation process where large banks should be focused on putting the rails, should be focused on building uh, uh, regulatory stability, and then acquiring or, or, or scaling the best solutions on the, on the needs that... Uh, yeah, and, and it's grow. interesting that, you know, that proliferation of, uh, of startups that are focusing on one particular thing then creates innovation not only within the company, but within networks. And Suresh, I mean, uh, you're here at Money 2020 with an announcement about uh, partnering with UnionPay as part of that... Chinese giants push into Europe. So it's almost innovation in, in the fact of connecting different people together in different places, yeah? Yeah, so, so we've actually um, launched a new platform. We, we, we launched it yesterday at Money 2020. And what we're trying to do is provide access to multiple service providers. So, you know, historically, uh, MasterCard and Visa have been kind of running the show. Um, when it comes to the acquiring side, UnionPay has been kind of in the space for some time. So, so to date, um, there haven't been any banks that have been able to issue union pay cards sure. um, because they just the rails or the access just wasn't there. Um, and we wanted to give them a choice. So actually, I would love to say that um, we were the first because they selected us. We were the first because we were able to actually launch them quicker than anybody else. So there are other providers that will be announcing yeah. them providing the service in the space. And I think that it's going to be interesting because people forget that UnionPay is the largest card scheme in the world. And although it's not very prevalent in Europe, sure. um, if they do aggressively go after this market, what will actually happen? It's interesting, you know, we, ha we were talking to Amazon Pay earlier, and there's obviously Alipay that's pushing through, and Union uh, Pay, and suddenly yeah. it turns from that two, two and a half horse race into, wow, like everyone's trying to do it. We see EPOS terminals here that are going to allow QR code scanning across Europe. Like, how, do we see, how do we see this payments uh, era changing? Is it not a MasterCard and Visa race anymore? I don't know. I, I, I obviously, I came from the payments uh, area and, and last night I actually had dinner with um, the company that acquired company, uh, FIS, and I asked them about WorldPay and everything that's happening there as well. And it is interesting because there are still, there is still, I think, a level of perception that it's a volume play and that as long as you buy market share, you know, you can have the dominant play. But at the same time, we all know that, you know, you can play the volume game, but the value of, of you know, goes down. So the income goes down. So you, that, that's not the way to win it. So you really have to look at the value game around it. And what I thought was interesting was when I heard yesterday morning that PayPal is entering sort of like the commerce uh, play at yeah, the merchant side. And that is very interesting because they obviously spotted an opportunity with PSD too. Because if you have a marketplace and you have to pay, you have to split pay, you're holding money as well. You can only do that if, you're, uh, if you have a license. And so I'm actually, I'm, I'm actually very keen to see what they build because so far Adjen does that and... Um, uh, well, it will come to me, there's, there's one or two other companies who do that on, on a big scale. But them entering the race will dramatically change the side at the, at the merchant's perspective. And that, together with instant payments, will have a massive impact on the merchant side. Because if you can do that, you know, for such a lower cost, 
with a PayPal or an instant payment, you know, the credit yeah, cards can... And there's complexity the to what you're describing. Suresh, cover your yeah. ears for a second. When I read this, I was like, great for you, great for Union Pay. Do I care? And then I was like, you know what I do? I don't care because of the degree of innovation, complexity. I care because transformationally, competition yeah. is good. And this has been a space that hasn't had enough of it. And what we're seeing across the board, I saw it when I was inside the bank, I'm definitely seeing it now, I'm outside the bank. It's when competition heats up that people start paying attention, that they put their thinking caps on. So is it in itself transformative? No. But actually bringing pressure onto what has been a sleepy bit of the market and, is going to be good for everyone. pressure is good for innovation. That's right. We all know that. Exactly. And, and, and that's your, what I'm your, waiting for. Your <laughs> points kind of connect because there's a thing of, if you're a commodity transactional player, then it's all about volumes. And it's a race to the bottom and that stuff. But actually, when it comes to innovation, you know, uh, especially around the networks, suddenly it's no longer just about a contextless transaction. No. It's about all of the context around this, which I guess, you know, brings us very squarely to Spendesk, yeah. where, you know, Jordan's building a business around expenses and, and that, but we have spendings. a lot of context that From, people have yeah. to currently enter. Do you want to tell us, a, I mean, how are you seeing how Can this, we have contactless, please, by the way? It's, it's, it's live, it's live. I'm going to, uh, to, send, to send it to you. <laughs> <laughs> I love my Thank you for the feedback. She's on the roadmap. Here we go. It's <laughs> been live for, for a month now. So, so I need a new card. So how are you seeing this, uh, this payments place? Because you're, you're in this, yeah? Yeah, so at Spendesk, we are, we are in, a, in a position where we have uh, financial transaction context because we issue cards, because yeah. we, uh, we make faster payments and outbound payments. And we are also in a place where we have uh, kind of a, a, a operational context. Uh, because when, when an employee needs to make a purchase, he needs to uh, explain why, uh, he needs to get the approval of his manager, he needs to provide the invoice, etc., etc. And so we, we are in a world where we have the, the, the kind of a business information and the financial information which put us in the, in the right place to basically provide value-added uh, 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 value services like uh, automated accounting, automated financial control. And, uh, and uh, one of our dreams would be to be maybe become one day uh, our own network because if we can connect our customers with their own suppliers uh -huh. on a, 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 a sub-network, that, 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 that could be more efficient. It's like a, a, a long-term dream. So I, I believe that uh, uh, yesterday I was at a, at a, at a conference uh, on uh, instant payment versus cards. Yeah. Uh, you, you, can, you can see these two technologies are, are, are as a competitor. And so I think that we'll see more and more uh, kind of a local or global networks, uh, each specialized in either instantaneous or seamless uh, transactions, yeah. such as uh, Lydia or Venmo, or either uh, uh, security on, or either uh, uh, added service for, uh, for, the, for the end customers, such as the, the card network. Yeah, uh, and that leads on to uh, well, maybe, maybe to, to add something. Yeah, yeah, maybe to add something to the conversation on payments because I do think payments are really important, and we will see kind of a fight, I think, in the market for payments. But in the end, I think payments are also very unimportant. I had a very interesting discussion with a private equity investor, and he told me he is now investing only in companies for which you, in the morning, open your app. And I think it was a very clever thought. He says you have to be the app that creates client interaction every day, every hour constantly and I think payments are important for this but they're also going to be in the background so they're going to be invisible sure. uh, and that's why I think solutions like, like of Spendex where you really get added value as an SME company are extremely valuable and even more valuable I think than the payments that's 
one example why we invest in Tello, which is a book bookkeeping app, it's probably close to what you do. Well, let's meet afterwards. Yeah, I think it would be great <laughs> because that creates added value for SMEs. <laughs> and yes, indeed, they will also eventually yeah. do payments. But you open the app because you want to do your administration and your taxes. You're not going to open up the app for payments itself. But, but that theme of sort of context and connecting with networks and creating your own networks yeah. ties into your announcement that uh, you're in a trial phase to help SMEs cope with PSD2, which is yeah. then allowing, you know, no manual uploading statements anymore, connecting into banks, yeah. uh, in, into your context, so you can do lending, uh, hopefully, with a, a lot less friction, a lot more context. Is yeah. that the idea? Yeah, yeah. so you're referring to Funder. So we yeah. launched, last week we launched Funder, which is digital lending solution for SMEs in the Netherlands, so it's not only for Rabobank clients, it's for everybody right. who would like to have an easy, quick loan based on transaction data. So it's a machine learning solution that is using PSD2 to get information and do very quick credit decisioning. And it's based on, let's say, the 120 years of experience that we have on credit. Uh, and it's, it's, we now have a soft launch with about 50 customers. And if successful, we're gonna launch this and scale it throughout the year. And in the end, gonna be a very important part of how we deal with SMEs in giving them loans, which is way easier than what you have today, which is a lot of paperwork, a lot of time, a lot of hassle, that in the end, SMEs don't like. They like to do business, go to clients and make money. But I guess then this moving away from the naked transaction to things that have context, to network, to new networks that aren't just a dumb payment of on this date, move this money to this person's account, but actually then lead to better decisions on who to lend money to, better loyalty programs, better expenses management on a global scale. That leads us to a very different place. It does lead us to a very different place. But the one thing I am uh, thinking about still is why are we still leading people to a variety of apps if as a bank you can embed that inside your bank account. Because I'm not entirely sure that people want to jump from app to app to app. And apps have fantastic niche technology, but there is absolutely no reason why people would not look at your technology, your spendex, and, and make it part of their proposition. Right? Oh, is this I like it very much. Well, I would be very curious to know if spendex is something that you could integrate into our app. If you could integrate I think it, because then people, you said to yourself, they want to be in the app in the morning. Well, if the app is Rabobank and if I can you do partner at the end of this, we want to cut. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is an intro fee. Oh, but I think you're right. So we have no, two and a half million visitors around, every day in the app. Exactly so. the same around Sunday. If but you go to your. But having app. said that, it's. Uh, there isn't one social network. I mean, there's this spectrum of, on one hand, you've got thousands of apps. Yeah. On the other hand, there's something about like the constellations and contexts around, if I'm talking to, if I'm providing uh, uh, information for my family, then it's maybe on Facebook. If I'm talking to the world, it's on Twitter. If I'm talking to my business contacts, it's on LinkedIn. Yeah. So there's something also about it not just being one app, but there's being something about the, the, con the yeah, so, yeah, yeah, so yeah. for personal finance. I don't finance, mean one app, There's my everyday finance, there's then sitting down on a Sunday evening and looking at my you yeah. know, banking. So I do think, I do think to your point, it's like there's not going to be a thousand, but there's also not going to be one. No, no, and no. And it's interesting as to, to who might no, no. win to and where that might go in it's that It's also space. an interesting tension point between the realization, to your yeah. point, that quite a lot of what we do for a living, the customer will appreciate more the more invisible and seamless it is. And the things that will be high interaction, high touch point, will either be critical to living or to doing business. And quite a lot of what traditionally a bank would do will not be there. It will be the plumbing underneath. Yeah. But if you want that high touch point, it's not that 85 gamified hoops of the app. It's partnerships I, I want to cut Absolutely. Well, I, th yeah. I think that's the play that at least we want to play. So we do banking as a platform, banking as a service. So banking as a platform means 
how do we make our app, our platform, yeah. even more interesting, also with non-banking services like Spendex or other one. Yeah. Yeah. But we also want to make sure that, as you said, if you are in other platforms where you maybe are looking for financial services, we have to make sure our financial services are plugged into as a service Absolutely. in those places where you are. Yeah. So the bank is invisible, but it's there. Yeah. Well, with that, we're going to have to take a break. Bart's going to have to run for a plane, yeah. and we'll talk to you shortly. With Trulio, we help organizations find out if it's truly you online. Global identity verification through Trulio's digital identity network enables organizations to verify 5 billion individuals in over 190 countries to help meet KYC and AML requirements and reduce fraud around the world. Speed up your customer onboarding online from days to seconds. One contract, one integration, one solution. Visit trulio.com today. That's T-R-U-L-I-O-O.com. Carta Worldwide provides issuer processing designed for the evolution of banking and payments. Carta is the engine behind fintech innovation around the globe, empowering new disruptors and enabling established banks to develop new products for the rapidly changing market. Carta's next generation platform excels where legacy systems are challenged, delivering adaptive, modern solutions for bank challengers, money movers, and the leading innovators of the digital economy. So we're back in the room. So Suresh, um, we've just spoken about networks, about context, about globalization, and we mentioned Alipay and Amazon Pay and everyone else. Like Union Pay, is that a, is that a thing? Yeah, so what I was going to say was that I think one of the things we shouldn't underestimate is the, is the driving force of the end customer. And, and I'll give you an example of that. Um, many people use, use an Amex card, and they know that there are a few merchants or, uh, you know, that don't accept Amex, but they're still willing to go for the experience of saying, I want to pay by Amex, and, and the merchant may say, I'm sorry, we don't accept Amex. The reason they do it is when... There points. are merchants that accept points, it, sir, points and loyalty. Right. And insurance. I, I, I am a dedicated Amex user. Do you want to know okay. why I use it? Yeah. Because I have never had a problem with um, unresolved fraud no. on, on my Amex account, whereas okay. I have banked with everyone in the UK, yeah. and they have messed up down to a man. So my loyalty has been gained got money by their, to spend. They by can their insurance these things, right? Because they're charging crazy interchange. I'm down with that. <laughs> I'm down and with that. And they have perfect insurance. If you yeah, travel very often to the US, you have an American card. Yes, but it's good. <laughs> but as a, as a user, don't dismiss no. the, um, yeah, the, the stickiness created by problem resolution so, and customer care. So, yeah. for example, if you went to the Middle East, if you went to Dubai... I, I lived in Qatar for two years. Okay, so if you go there... So when and, you were in the Middle East... When you, were, when you were in the Middle East and you were basically using a Union Pay or a China Union Pay card, you were getting sometimes 10% cash back. No, I mean, you don't pay a lot in Qatar, but yes. Ten <laughs> percent cashback. Interesting. Wait, but, but that, but that means that uh, I, as someone who was visiting and not using that, was you're like, robbed. Yeah, basically robbed because the merchant then has to pay. I thought we'd been through this. I thought by so would that be a good reason for you to use a union pay card yeah, as an it's example? That, it's that sort of short-term candy floss buzz that ultimately costs me money. You know, it's the that's why we've capped interchange across like and I think it's the the um, differentiator. So to your point, and without being flippant, the Middle East has one of the most amazing cultures of rewards. So in Qatar, we didn't have union pay, but like I would get myself, I would bag enough points for a business class flight anywhere within a few weeks of just buying sandwiches, right? <laughs> really expensive sandwiches. No, no, <laughs> gold plated. No. Just incredibly. 
generous reward schemes. Okay. It's part of the culture. It's a hygiene factor. The minute you get to a place where the expectation, but it's not a differentiator. No one will choose their credit card provider because of that. It's considered a hygiene factor by the banks and the providers. It's treated as a hygiene factor by the customers. You can't not do it because everyone else does it, but it's not differentiating. So the interesting thing is when you enter a market that doesn't behave like that, do you still offer it? Or do you actually fall in line either because it's expected or because it's cheaper with everyone else? And I think that's, that's the... Um, that will be the million dollar question. Will they use their scale to essentially create a differentiator? Because jokes apart, Amex has created a differentiating proposition, not around fees, but around customer care. It's not necessarily sustainable from a monetization perspective, but what's the, that's what the only thing they've got going for them. I, I think it will be an interesting thing to watch, how they will use what is common in other markets and their scale to potentially create a different degree of expectation. That's true. It will be one to watch. Yeah. So moving on to the next story. eBay partners with Asto to offer a new finance solution. Online marketplace eBay and Asto, the Santander-backed fintech that aims to help small businesses run and grow through a range of financial and non-financial services, much to Connie's point, um, have partnered to offer cash flow loans to eBay's growing network of small businesses. The partnership aims to help eBay's small business customer base ease cash flow issues and grow their businesses. With over 200,000 SMEs using the platform in the UK, eBay's committed to helping their businesses grow and thrive. So what do we think? So I think it's not the, the, the first time that uh, we see such a partnership. Uh, in a sense that uh, Alibaba... Uh, they have their own offering in terms of uh, lending to, uh, to SMBs. Uh, another thing is that uh, Alibaba has recently partnered with Cabbage uh, to provide also loans to, uh, to SMBs. And so I think that uh, uh, as of today, most of the, most of the lending uh, uh, force were uh, uh, targeted toward the buyer, you know, with credit, with uh, uh, multiple time payments. Uh, in France, there is a lot of uh, solutions to pay in three or four times. Uh, and now we, st we, we start seeing uh, uh, lending on the, on the SME side, which is going to uh, uh, obviously drive in the short term uh, more uh, liquid liquidity and more uh, uh, value on these, uh, on these markets, uh, on, these, uh, on these platforms. So for them, I guess it's good. For the SMBs, I guess it's, it's, uh, it's good too. But in the long term, uh, I think that if we inject too much liquidity, then SMBs will, will, uh, provide, will uh, produce more goods. This will drive the uh, uh, pr price of goods uh, down and uh, we may face uh, some, uh, some recessions. I don't want to be pessimistic, but uh, it's, uh, I guess it's... I guess it's always been an attractive market segment, but the main problem being you don't, it's very difficult to know with SMEs who's going to be around next week. And that ultimately, if I'm going to lend to an eBay provider, yeah. am I going to get my money back? Well, that's why I think that for me, the, the, the most perfect business case for a PSD2 style proposition is the lending space because those um, apps provide loans, but there are many ways of giving access to finance. And I think it's not, it's not tailored enough, whereas PSD2 is exactly now the actor that gives the lender insight in the behavior. And if the lender is, for instance, a bank, and he has access to your accounting information, or it is in the bank account, he sees who you send invoices to, what's coming in, who's a good payer, who's a bad payer, what's happening, then, then you're in exactly the right spot to come up with a good example for business finance. 
and it it doesn't have to be alone. It could be that I only will have a shortfall because I need to pay my staff. And five days later, we know that a regular customer will pay. And so I can give you, you know, I'll say to you, you know, why don't you sort of, as we say in Holland, go into red for five days and pay that. Or I see that you have two customers who are very regular good buyers. You know what? I take those invoices from you. We'll do invoice finance. So I think uh, for me, that is exactly the example we spoke about earlier. We take lending and we digitize the existing process and make the chain shorter and then call it innovation. For me, innovation is that you look at my access to finance need and make an appropriate proposal for that particular situation. And I I think that's what banks can do. I think what will be interesting is what they base that loan on. Because I feel like saying, if it's just a loan, do I just go on a comparison website and see the best provider? Are they going to give me a loan based on my trading history on eBay? Like, have I got a better rating because they've got more data? If it's based on that, I would actually think, well, that's pretty good because I might have really bad credit rating, but my, my, you know, what I do online trading has been really, really good on eBay. And as a result, I'll get some great benefits. And one of the other examples that I've got is that, you know, I've got a PayPal account and every time they keep pushing me saying, why don't you get a credit card? And I'm thinking, <laughs> well, PayPal account is kind of stored value and I don't mind having a card linked to that, but why would I get a credit card from PayPal? And I just feel some of the offerings are very disjointed, kind of saying we're going to give loans to eBay customers. Well, I could get the eBay eBay database, email them with a great rate and say, we're doing this special promotion for you. And it could be packaged like this great innovative solution, but it might just be black and white, just a a loan provider that's providing a service to that customer base. Yeah. And actually, with the mention of PayPal, you take us on to our next story. Uh, Tink uh, receives strategic investment from PayPal. So announced this morning, money 2020, open banking platform Tink announced strategic investment from PayPal to continue its expansion across Europe. With this investment, PayPal has agreed to partner with Tink to leverage its account aggregation technology to improve product experiences for PayPal customers. Yeah. What do we think? Well, it links immediately to their announcement here at Money 2020, eh? PayPal Commerce. Yeah. So they're moving from just the buyer side to the supply side. And, uh, and obviously, you know, to your point, first, as a merchant, they will say, why don't you work just with us and we'll begin to do any payment, crowdfunding, marketplaces, just plain e-commerce. It makes me feel really old, though, because I remember and when PayPal was the startup. Remember exactly, that? Exactly, I know. Remember that, but I remember that. <laughs> but I had a very interesting conversation with someone from PayPal about 10 years ago now. Yeah. But how they, they felt at the time they had reached inflection point because the incremental um, increase of new people getting old enough to have a PayPal yeah. account was all they could aspire to from a geography perspective, from yeah. a penetration perspective. Yeah. They had gone as far as they would. Some people will die, some people will be born. What next? And it was, I remember that it was a, a massive shock to me at the time to realize that it can happen so fast. But it has been extremely interesting to observe from the outside. Yeah. Their successful and unsuccessful exploration of seeing where they have brand permission to, to diversify and expand. Because to your point, Connie, they're trying to follow the transaction up and down yeah, in value. Yeah, Not absolutely. everything they've done has worked. And it's actually nice to see the next attempt. Not because I, I like to see them fail, but I like the tenacity of being public about the... Like, you know, everyone gives you the happy ending. And then you're like, but what happened before? You didn't get to that immediately. So it's been nice to see that journey of reinvention. But do you not think that PayPal was a missed opportunity? Because I've never heard of anybody say kind of PayPal was a 
the first challenger bank or something, but they almost had all the ingredients in the early days to do that. You know, you almost hear someone talking about Metro Bank being a challenger bank, but they, you know, and it, that is kind of in between what PayPal. What are challenging? Well, they, they were bankers and they were nice at a time, but that didn't happen. Yeah, it's yeah, interesting, though, how, you know, hey, this, like, this was Elon Musk. This is like early, early, early days. Yeah. Like, this is pre-Tesla, pre-all of that stuff. And X.com, wasn't it? And, yeah. yeah. And yet they've, they sort of grew, but have almost been a sort of the giant, but become an incumbent before their time almost. Does that, yes, does that make sense? Yes and no, though, because they really, at the right point, about, I think it was about, don't hold me to it, three or four years ago, they figured out that although they were less than 10 years old, they'd embarked, they set off on the wrong technology to deal with the incredible volumes of payments they were doing. And they completely rewrote their entire payments technology. And it went from like, you know, hundreds massive IBM servers to run the stuff on to two because they went just in time to the new technology. So I do have a lot of time for the seasoned startup mentality of PayPal. I would also question whether Oof. that was the success we knew at the time, you know? The fact that they became an incumbent was a shape that was recognized as successful. We didn't have this culture of... No. Well, who else was doing, you know, were you putting your credit cards online? You know, getting a merchant account was horrific. Like, no one could do it. You couldn't do online exactly. sort of payments. But How are you going to buy things on eBay? They, they, they grew as a, as a parasite of eBay in their, uh, yeah. in their, in their first day. They, yeah. Uh, yeah. they had, uh, uh, you know, m multiple conversations uh, so that eBay can uh, buy them back. Uh, then they decided to refuse uh, an offer from eBay at around 800 or 900 uh, million, million dollars. They went public. Their IPO were, um, yeah. was more than 1 billion. And yeah. then eBay had to, had to buy them 1.6 billion uh, yeah. before selling them uh, like a few, a few years ago. Good problems to have, eh? But back to the Tink uh, story. I, I, I went to meet them uh, uh, this morning. They okay. wouldn't say anything. Uh, really? Uh, yeah, about, uh, <laughs> about it. Even though it's, uh, it's written everywhere that they made yeah. this uh, huge partnership. So I asked, I asked them that what are they going to, 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 to do with it? And uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty blurry uh, yet. But I, I think that for, for PayPal, it's, uh, I mean, Pay PayPal is, a, is an alternative network. So I guess that one of their challenges is to put money in that network. Yeah. And so I guess that Tink yeah. could be a way with uh, open banking to initiate payment from their customers' uh, classic bank account into the network so that then money can move uh, uh, freely in that, uh, in that network. It's all about networks, I tell you. <laughs> so apparently things have been happening outside of the Money 2020 universe. What? I know. Well, what? Can't be. Can't no, be I days. thought we were all here. <laughs> is, is there anyone left to do yes, anything? Yes, Trump visited the Queen in England. That's why we're here. No, we're not talking about that. <laughs> we are not talking about that. Right, so the FT says that Europe leads the $31 trillion charge on sustainable investing. Uh, Ilmarion, I wish we had someone finish here. We need Christian from OP. Um, the Finnish investment fund dropped $1.6 billion into two exchange-traded funds, ETFs to the rest of us, designed to address the world's ills, the, among the fastest-growing ETFs on record. Wow. What do we think about sustainable investing? Oh, well, I think we're... I think, first of all, of course, I think it's great because no matter what we do, we, uh, the one thing we owe the world is, you know, that we leave a world for our kids to live in, full stop. So that is going to... What I do think, though, that is it is at the risk of being as overhyped as fintech is, was, whatever we think, um, because we're all trying to prevent everything, whereas I think there should be more a better balance in putting money in things that help us prevent things from happening, but also in dealing with the inevitable. 
And uh, for some reason, that's not viewed as sort of sustainable enough, whereas I think it's a very pragmatic approach, and so we should look at that as well. But it says that uh, in the article that two portfolios, these two, uh, form part of a wave of sustainable investing, now yeah. measuring 31 trillion in assets, including yeah. 7.5 trillion managed in environmental, social yeah. and governance funds. And investors are reshaping their, their portfolios to pay closer attention to sustainable funds, with European institutional investors much more committed, where in the US they're a bit slower. Yeah, yeah. and are there enough assets to There's invest in? Well, there, there, there seems to be, right? There's an interesting virtuous circle. And, and we saw it coming out of jurisdictions like this one, like the Netherlands, where an expectation yeah. for certain types of funds for pensions, etc., forced banks to create those, yeah. those um, vehicles and those assets. So I'm a big fan of the regulator expecting it and... and people falling in line. To, to your point, Connie, we do all need a world to live in. I'm always a little apprehensive that it might be a little bit like free-range chickens. Like it, yeah. comes, it comes down to the type of criteria you need to fulfill oh, sure. in order to qualify. And some of those um, vehicles Carbon are associated credits. with... In, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> some of it is incredibly aspirational and yeah. ambitious, and some is, you know, free-range chickens, as long as you have one inch either way. Um, it's still better than not, so I'd, I'd still have the painting by numbers European approach than the US saw it, yeah. let it burn. But at the same time, it would be interesting to see whether we will see a trend that makes the that measures the impact, not just the checklist. Okay, and here's a very interesting one. I ran into a company not long ago, and I think they are. I'm not easily excited because I see a lot of companies, but there's this company in the Netherlands, Olin. And I love it. It's like an owl. It has a sort of 360-degree head. And what you can <laughs> I'm excited do, already. I don't know yeah, what they're the, doing. The <laughs> and what you can use their technology for is, let's take your thing about sustainable investing. They look at ad hoc information on all platforms, deep, you know, in the sort of darker sides of the webs or totally on social. So if, for instance, I say, well, I'm uh, Mrs. Rabico and I have a sustainable investment fund, they can actually figure out whether all those assets that are in that fund that's being invested in, whether there's nothing, something dodgy going on. Because when people like Rubico say, this is a sustainable fund, I invest in it, it turns out not to be very sustainable. You know, the reputational risk alone is dramatic. And so what they do is they really scan the planet and see whether there is a, what the reputational risk is. So they do AI deep dive also on reputational risks. And that is quite new, but I find that very interesting because we really have to worry about that because we're sick and tired of something being called green and then it turns out that, you know, like with Volkswagen, it wasn't. So I actually think it will bring on a new sort of secondary interesting wave in our fintech field as well. Because I find it really interesting. I mean, we've been talking about the innovators dilemma in banks. You know, banks are going a certain way. There's a big shift. It's not sustainable. They've got to change. It's very difficult. And now when we zoom out, We've got like the geopolitical innovators dilemma. Yeah. You know, we've been heading along this yeah. route and that route has to change. But ultimately, our, our economy and so much is based on, you know, oil based traditional plastics and everything else I mean, that we can't just stop doing it. But, but equally, there are just so many vested interests in keeping things going. Yeah. So like we are screwed if we continue along this path. Yeah. Yeah. Yet everyone, everyone's, or a lot of incentives are to keep doing it. So how do we make that cultural change? How do we make that thing even happen like at, a, at a global even, scale? On a sceptical level, um, you know, <laughs> having this badge of honour that says this is kind of 
ethical. It's, it's, it's very attractive. I'm a good guy, right? right? But the question is, how many layers is that? Is it, is it just on the surface? So, so it's attractive, it's getting Up the funding in order for it yeah. to do that. If you go down the layers, what sits behind that? You know, yeah. and, and, and I remember you know, similar where we were providing technologies to companies that wanted to provide uh, Sharia banking. And it was very, very specific. And it, was, it went down to levels where I, didn't even, I couldn't even explain how those funds were being managed. And I think... That's the area where I just think that it, is it a tick box that on the surface level it's attractive, everyone's happy, yeah. but you go lower down, it's actually the same stuff. Well, it's, it's a bit like innovation theatre oh. in banks, suddenly That's becomes right. ethical yeah. theatre in the, uh, the, the big Exactly, big and the scheme. depressing thing is that the only thing that really works in sustainability is for us all to consume less. Eh? But we have six, you know, we went from a summer wardrobe and a winter wardrobe to six wardrobes. Uh, and changes a year, and they fly it in from all over the world. The one thing that would be more sustainable is just cut out all, you know, the cheap carriers, but, you know, and shower less long. But our behavior has changed, and it's so hard to change. Come on, but, but like, the Kardashians have, like, 12 wardrobes. Like, I, at least I can have six. Come on. Yeah, I know. Provided I know, they're only 11 and I'm just saying, <laughs> it is so difficult, because consumerism has become almost like a hobby. And... Buying is easier, and in fairness, everything gets cheaper. Buying makes you happy, Connie, you know that. No. <laughs> no. Food buying makes me happy. Food buying. I, I see it like shared ownership. They make these amazing yeah. luxury apartments, and they've got to make some ones for people. Yeah. And it's like, how do we make this work, as opposed to, do they really want to do it? So this leads us on to Brits turn to digital banking, reveals new study from MasterCard. 84% of Brits regularly bank online via a mobile app. Safety and security identified as the biggest reason to bank digitally, with 66% of respondents. And the main reason uh, Brits associated with digital banking were time-saving and being simple uh, and an easier to use, 58%. What do we think? Shouldn't that say cake? Is this 1992? Yes. Is this 1992? Uh, Shouldn't the headline say cakes make you fat <laughs> yeah bears well, woods <laughs> i guess i mean look they've done a study you, it Master says Pat. most people are using digital banking 44 percent say they would consider switching to a digital only bank rising to 58 percent for 18 to 29 year olds so that, that's an interesting statistic not a surprising one but part of me wants to march down to the mastercard stand yeah. and ask them what were you thinking when you commissioned the research and what were you going to do with it? Yeah. Because I cannot believe that anyone was surprised at those findings. I'd love to know the variations in age. That would be quite interesting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it is interesting because at least from a digital banking perspective, the average age is actually a lot higher than people think. It's like all of the, oh, well, you know, yes. the new banks. It's like yeah. early 30s is really the sweet spot, not the kind of 18 to 20s stuff. So there are some interesting things like that, but I, str I struggle to bring out some stats that weren't like intuitively, I would have guessed that in yeah. the first yeah, place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we are too far down this road to really require validation of those instincts because the market proves it. So I'm yeah. genuinely tempted to march down and ask, what the research was for. Because yeah. you're not going to commission research unless you're going to do something with it. So what was it they didn't know or needed to prove to their board? In order, it, it just seems so obvious. It's uh, just maybe another way to say that now, uh, uh, I mean, mobile and online is just a new reference. It's not, it's not a passing fad? Oh, I think it is. I think it's going to go away. <laughs> I, think, I think we're heading back to the passbook. I want my stamp. 
whether I it made me feel so good as a child when I saw yeah. the new line with the higher number. No, no, I'm, I've got a like a little pet plan that I'm going <laughs> to open an old-fashioned bank branch in Old Street in Shoreditch. Yes. We're going to only do cash. We're only two passbooks. It will just be a tourist. Attraction. I think you should have a zip zap machine as well. Oh. Okay. <laughs> I definitely, that old credit card. I'm coming to you. I want integration of my Exactly, and the money being delivered in bank. the branch through one of those tubes. So you hear, Zoosh. This is getting better and better. I, I'm going to dress like Mary Poppins bankers, like that, that bowler hat thing. Yeah. We are going to go old school. It's like, you know, exactly. uh, it's like single speed bikes. Single speed bikes. Like you go hear, that, Zoosh, and then you hear. Go that entire opposite direction. Plop, and they open the cylinder. The like a scene from Harry Potter. It is. Oh, and yeah, I felt it's going to be sorry. like Gringotts underneath. <laughs> We're going to have a few cellars and a big vault. But anyway, moving on. I'm enjoying so, it. <laughs> so finally, that felt like an and finally story, by the way. But and finally... <laughs> this was a, a great story. Though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we just finished. It's like a fake news story of Jason's, like, you know, new bank. <laughs> but anyway. Um, a school in China has made facial recognition software that scans the students' behaviour in the classroom every 30 seconds. This is my favourite bit. It recognises seven expressions. Neutral, happy, sad, scared, disappointed, surprised. It also analyzes six Teenager. parts of activity, <laughs> such as reading, writing, raised hands, listening skills, and allows the teachers to monitor and analyze their behavior and attendance. Hmm. Suddenly, there's a whole new Attendance group. was snuck in there quite, quite uh, last There's a minute. whole new group of students who are going to learn how to fake interested and raising hands so yeah. that they can fake move their metrics. No, I think we all faked interesting at some point. Faking attendance is the hard one. Like, uh, one of my old companies had an ice cream machine that gave you a magnum if you smiled. And we, we, I once made myself sick eating too many ice creams because I wanted yeah. to know how genuine the smile needed to be like, you go along now and do this. And the, the, the reality yeah. is you still got the ice cream. But those images were not stored. Obviously the attendance piece is, is creepy, but as a, those of you who are parents, because I'm not, how creepy is this? Because to analyze the Freaking information, creepy. it gets stored, right? It is <laughs> beyond creepy. It is beyond Brave creepy. New World, 1984, dystopian future, Blade Runner, yeah. this is it. The Bates children will be homeschooled <laughs> yeah. starting immediately. Because we tend to forget that we're still humans. And that there was some very interesting research that came out that was very new. And this was about babies, the, the relationship between babies and mothers. Because in the old days, like when I had a baby 25 years ago, you would walk your pram and babies grow up and learn how to interact and talk to you from the very first minute when they can't speak by following your mimics. And they, even then with their face, they sort of smile or open their eyes or are surprised. You know that even if you look at a child at an airport, it's totally not yours. They react. That's how they learn to communicate and that's how they learn to become social animals. And these days, they did some research. You see a lot of mums on the phone pushing the pram as if literally the push just has to be pram. Oh, the pr pushed. The pram just has to be pushed. And they found that children are really coming into school now with severely uh, less communication skills than like five to ten years ago because their parents don't mimic with them anymore and they don't look them in the eye and they don't make eye contact. But they and know how to skip the ads on YouTube. Yeah. Connie, like, money 2020 is supposed to be my happy place. You're just bringing me down. Like, no, this no, is, no, uh, because you're going to do it differently. Think, you're going to just pull faces to your children. Oh, I, I do. I mean, they're, I they're socialized already, though. Like, <laughs> if, if I were to defend this... Uh, this uh, oh, do you, though? Do you? Let's try for the exercise. I mean, what, what is not measured cannot be improved. Okay, that's right. A, that's, that's a statement. 
Okay, and as what a is parent, not, uh, what is not surveilled cannot be controlled. Maybe is another way of saying it. No, I'm, I'm, I'm team Jason. This <laughs> I like that one, Jason. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm not a parent yet, but as a parent, uh, I, I would like to make sure that the education system uh, is good, right, and that the best teachers. Uh, uh, teach yeah. the best things. I don't. I don't to, uh, see the teachers being kids. monitored here. The teachers and maybe you can, you, can, you can see this as a way, maybe to kind of uh, assess. It's kind of an NPS for kids. No. Okay. Okay. You know, an NPS for kids. Yeah, yeah, I will push that. That's a good idea. I'm gonna just literally <laughs> jump in because this drives me mad. That is the worst thing you can do. A child is first of all not your property, so you are not to monitor it at all. Your task in life is to let that child become who it needs to be with its own ability, its own DNA, and learn it to fly and coach it and encourage it. It's not there to be measured because who is bloody well setting the standard that what makes a perfect kid? I like, I love your indignation. For example, let's say a teacher says something. I love the indignation. Like a, a math class, okay, yeah. like geometry, uh, 3D no. geometry. Yeah. It's a nightmare for yeah. most of us. And then you see that all, all the faces are like surprised or, or, or you, 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 can, you can see that incomprehension on, on, people's, on people's face. Maybe you could not. But, but you know, I don't think they've gone far enough. We've got to bring this to a close. And boy, was this a he controversial one. He doesn't think they've gone far enough. Yeah, yeah, I think that if you get oh, the wrong facial, to my it, they should be electrified. Electric shock. You know what comes to mind here is the fundamental difference between how startups view the world and the intent, which I think we share, which is a, actually, you can use modern technology and this kind of thing, you could do good with it. With the right intent, the right people in charge, yeah. it could be used for good. However, it's, in this case, it's unlikely to be done. Yeah. But, but this leads to like the whole Facebook stuff of, actually, if we put this thing out there and we let lots of uh, things interconnect, the most amazing ecosystem yeah. of services could arrive. Yeah. Eventually, yes, it creates Cambridge Analytica yeah. and, and all kinds I of know, issues. I know, but, but I think these things start in a... Not for China, but no. start in a startup place from a really good intent. And actually, when you look at challenger banks, they're probably given a lot more leeway because of the assumed intent. Whereas big banks yeah. are often looked at with whatever they do, it's like, yeah, but you're just kind of strewing me on charges. Okay. Yeah. So there is something super yeah. important. But on I intent. will say something very important. If you treat your children like that, you monitor them, you measure them against failure or success, you're going to create bankers of the 80s. Wow. Because you oh, are going to create terrifying. people that feel that they must succeed and they cannot. They're not allowed to fail or to learn on their own pace and on their own strength. I, I, I'm They're surprised not allowed to learn lessons. And so you will create the, exactly the right people we do not need for innovation. Facial machine learning. I, I feel like this should be a, we should do a follow-on podcast on this because there's something interesting here. But on that, <laughs> on that, I have to bring this week's new show to an end. Thanks so much to our guests. That's been really fun. Where can people find out more about you, Connie? Oh, at uh, be here, picking tights. Here at Money 2020 at uh, Bankify-Global on Twitter or Rubicon Finance, my own Twitter feed, or bestisbankify.com. Bankify.com. Jordan, where can people find out about In China. No, no. You may see my face in a, in, a, in a class in China. No, in, uh, in Paris, central Paris, where, uh, where I live and, and where uh, Spendesk offices are. Uh, so on Spendesk.com or uh, on my uh, LinkedIn. Perfect. Suresh. So we're in uh, London Bridge, uh, but you can go on our website, uh, trypayments.com, and we're based in the, the largest um, TP in, in Europe, the, the Shard. And as for me... Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jason Bates. And I'm also on Twitter at Leader Clyptis. So what do you think of today's stories? Let us know on Twitter at Fintech Insiders. And don't forget, if you love the show, be sure to leave us a review. 
thanks for everyone who's already done so. We love reading them and we really appreciate it. So you can find 11FS on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Periscope, basically everywhere that David Breer has an account. Um, thank True you for story. listening. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>